Part 1, Chapter 3, Section 24 of The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss, translated by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 1, History of the Birth and Childhood of Jesus. Chapter 3, Announcement of the Conception of Jesus, Its Supernatural Character, Visit of Mary to Elizabeth. Section 24 disagreements of the canonical gospels in relation to the form of the annunciation after the foregoing general sketch we now proceed to examine the external circumstances which according to our gospels attended the first communication of the future birth of jesus to mary and joseph leaving out of sight for the present the special import of the annunciation namely that jesus should be supernaturally begotten of the holy spirit we shall in the first place consider merely the form of the announcement by whom when and in what manner it was made as the birth of the baptist was previously announced by an angel so the conception of jesus was according to the gospel histories proclaimed after the same fashion but whilst in the one case we have but one history of the apparition that of luke in the other we have two accounts accounts however which do not correspond and which we must now compare apart from the essential signification the two accounts exhibit the following differences one the individual who appears is called in matthew by the indefinite appellation angel of the lord in luke by the name the angel gabriel two the person to whom the angel appears is according to matthew joseph according to luke mary three in matthew the apparition is seen in a dream in luke whilst awake four there is a disagreement in relation to the time at which the apparition took place according to matthew joseph receives the heavenly communication after mary was already pregnant according to luke it was made to mary prior to her pregnancy five lastly both the purpose of the apparition and the effect produced are different it was designed according to matthew to comfort joseph who was troubled on account of the pregnancy of his betrothed according to luke to prevent by a previous announcement all possibility of offence where the discrepancies are so great and so essential it may at first sight appear altogether superfluous to inquire whether the two evangelists record one and the same occurrence though with considerable disagreement or whether they record distinct occurrences so that the two accounts can be blended together and the one be made to amplify the other the first supposition cannot be admitted without impeaching the historical validity of the narrative for which reason most of our theologians indeed all who see in the narrative a true history whether miraculous or natural have decided in favor of the second supposition maintaining and justly that the silence of one evangelist concerning an event which is narrated by the other is not a negation of the event they blend the two accounts together in the following manner one first the angel makes known to mary her approaching pregnancy from luke two she then journeys to elizabeth from the same gospel three after her return her situation being discovered joseph takes offence from matthew 
whereupon, four, he likewise is visited by an angelic apparition, from the same gospel. But this arrangement of the incidents is, as Schleiermacher has already remarked, full of difficulty, and it seems that what is related by one evangelist is not only not presupposed, but excluded by the other. For, in the first place, the conduct of the angel who appears to Joseph is not easily explained if the same or another angel had previously appeared to Mary. The angel, in Matthew, speaks altogether as if his communication were the first in this affair. He neither refers to the message previously received by Mary, nor reproaches Joseph because he had not believed it. But more than all, the informing Joseph of the name of the expected child and the giving him a full detail of the reasons why he should be so called, from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, would have been wholly superfluous had the angel, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 34, already indicated this name to Mary. Still more incomprehensible is the conduct of the betrothed parties according to this arrangement of events. Had Mary been visited by an angel, who had made known to her an approaching supernatural pregnancy, would not the first impulse of a delicate woman have been to hasten to impart to her betrothed the import of the divine message, and by this means to anticipate the humiliating discovery of her situation, and an injurious suspicion on the part of her affianced husband? But exactly this discovery Mary allows Joseph to make from others, and thus excites suspicions. For it is evident that the expression ehuresse en gastri ecusa from Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 signifies a discovery made independent of any communication on Mary's part, and it is equally clear that in this manner only does Joseph obtain the knowledge of her situation, since his conduct is represented as the result of that discovery. The apocryphal Proto-Evangelium Jacobi felt how enigmatical Mary's conduct must appear, and sought to solve this difficulty in a manner which, contemplated from the supernaturalistic point of view, is perhaps the most consistent. Had Mary retained a recollection of the import of the heavenly message, upon this point the whole ingenious representation of the apocryphal gospel rests, she ought to have imparted it to Joseph. But since it is obvious from Joseph's demeanor that she did not acquaint him with it, the only remaining alternative is to admit that the mysterious communication made to Mary had, owing to her excited state of mind, escaped her memory, and that she was herself ignorant of the true cause of her pregnancy. In fact, nothing is left to supernaturalism in the present case but to seek refuge in the miraculous and the incomprehensible. The attempts which the modern theologians of this class have made to explain Mary's silence, and even to find in it an admirable trait in her character, are so many rash and abortive efforts to make a virtue of necessity. According to Hess, it must have cost Mary much self-denial to have concealed the communication of the angel from Joseph, and this reserve, in a matter known only to herself and to God, must be regarded as a proof of her firm trust in God. Without doubt, Mary communed thus with herself. It is not without a purpose that this apparition has been made to me alone. 
had it been intended that joseph should have participated in the communication the angel would have appeared to him also if each individual favored with a divine revelation were of this opinion how many special revelations would it not require besides it is an affair of god alone consequently it becomes me to leave it with him to convince joseph the argument of indolence olhausen concurs and adds his favorite general remark that in relation to events so extraordinary the measure of the ordinary occurrences of the world is not applicable a category under which in this instance the highly essential considerations of delicacy and propriety are included more in accordance with the views of the natural interpreters the evangelium de nativitate maria and subsequently some later writers for example the author of the natural history of the great prophet of nazareth have sought to explain mary's silence by supposing joseph to have been at a distance from the abode of his affianced bride at the time of the heavenly communication according to them mary was of nazareth joseph of bethlehem to which later place joseph departed after the betrothing and did not return to mary until the expiration of three months when he discovered the pregnancy which had taken place in the interim but since the assumption that mary and joseph resided in different localities has no foundation as will presently be seen in the canonical gospels the whole explanation falls to the ground without such an assumption mary's silence towards joseph might perhaps have been accounted for from the point of view of the naturalistic interpreters by imagining her to have been held back through modesty from confessing a situation so liable to excite suspicion but one who like mary was so fully convinced of the divine agency in the matter and has shown so ready a comprehension of her mysterious destination see luke chapter one verse thirty eight could not possibly have been tongue-tied by petty considerations of false shame consequently in order to rescue mary's character without bringing reproach upon joseph's and at the same time to render his unbelief intelligible interpreters have been compelled to assume that a communication though a tardy one was actually made by mary to joseph like the last-named apocryphal gospel they introduce a journey not of joseph but of mary the visit to elizabeth mentioned in luke to account for the postponement of the communication it is probable says paulus that mary did not open her heart to joseph before this journey because she wished first to consult with her older friend as to the mode of making the disclosure to him and whether she as the mother of the messiah ought to marry it was not till after her return and then most likely through the medium of others that she made joseph acquainted with her situation and with the promises she had received but joseph's mind was not properly attuned and prepared for such a disclosure he became haunted by all kinds of thoughts and vacillated between suspicion and hope till at length a dream decided him but in the first place a motive is here given to mary's journey which is foreign to the account in luke mary sets off to elizabeth not to take counsel of her but to assure herself regarding the sign appointed by the angel no uneasiness which the friend is to dissipate 
but a proud joy unalloyed by the smallest anxiety is expressed in her salutation to the future mother of the baptist but besides a confession so tardily made can in no wise justify mary what behaviour on the part of the affianced bride after having received a divine communication so nearly concerning her future husband and in a manner so delicate to travel miles away to absent herself for three months and then to permit her betrothed to learn through third persons that which could no longer be concealed those therefore who do not impute to mary a line of conduct which certainly our evangelists do not impute to her must allow that she imparted the message of the angel to her future husband as soon as it had been revealed to her but that he did not believe her but now let us see how joseph's character is to be dealt with even hess is of opinion that since joseph was acquainted with mary he had no cause to doubt her word when she told him of the apparition she had had this scepticism presupposes a mistrust of his betrothed which is incompatible with the character as a just man from matthew chapter one verse nineteen and an incredulity respecting the marvellous which is difficult to reconcile with a readiness on other occasions to believe in angelic apparitions nor in any case would this want of faith have escaped the censure of the angel who subsequently appeared to himself since then to suppose that the two accounts are parallel and complete one another leads unavoidably to results inconsistent with the sense of the gospels in so far as they evidently meant to represent the characters of joseph and mary as free from blemish the supposition cannot be admitted but the accounts mutually exclude each other an angel did not appear first to mary and also afterwards to joseph he can only have appeared either to the one or to the other consequently it is only the one or the other relation which can be regarded as historical and here different considerations would conduct to opposite decisions the history in matthew might appear the more probable from the rationalistic point of view because it is more easy to interpret naturally an apparition in a dream whilst that in luke might be preferred by the supernaturalist because the manner in which the suspicion cast upon the holy virgin is refuted is more worthy of god but in fact a nearer examination proves that neither has any essential claim to be advanced before the other both contain an angelic apparition and both are therefore encumbered with all the difficulties which as was stated above in relation to the annunciation of the birth of the baptist oppose the belief in angels and apparitions again in both narrations the import of the angelic message is as we shall presently see an impossibility thus every criterion which might determine the adoption of the one and the rejection of the other disappears and we find ourselves in reference to both accounts driven back by necessity to the mythical view from this point of view all the various explanations which the rationalists have attempted to give of the two apparitions vanish of themselves paulus explains the apparition in matthew as a natural dream occasioned by mary's previous communication of the announcement which had been made to her and with which joseph must have been acquainted 
because this alone can account for his having heard the same words in his dream, which the angel had beforehand addressed to Mary. But much rather is it precisely this similarity in the language of the presumed second angel to that of the first, with the absence of all reference by the latter to the former, which proves that the words of the first angel were not presupposed by the second. Besides, the natural explanation is annihilated the moment the narratives are shown to be mythical. The same remark applies to the explanation, expressed guardedly indeed by Paulus, but openly by the author of the natural history of the great prophet of Nazareth, namely, that the angel who visited Mary, in Luke, was a human being, of which we must speak hereafter. According to all that has been said, the following is the only judgment we can form of the origin of the two narratives of the angelic apparitions. The conception of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Ghost, ought not to be grounded upon a mere uncertain suspicion. It must have been clearly and positively asserted, and to this end a messenger from heaven was required, since theocratic decorum seemed to demand it far more in relation to the birth of the Messiah than of a Samson or a John. Also, the words which the angels use correspond in part with the Old Testament annunciations of extraordinary children. The appearing of the angel in the one narrative beforehand to Mary, but in the other at a later period to Joseph, is to be regarded as a variation in the legend or in the composition, which finds an explanatory counterpart in the history of the Annunciation of Isaac. Jehovah, in Genesis chapter 17, verse 15, promises Abraham a son by Sarah, upon which the patriarch cannot refrain from laughing, but he receives a repetition of the assurance. Jehovah, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1 and following, makes this promise under the terebinth tree at Mamre, and Sarah laughs as if it were something altogether novel and unheard of by her. Lastly, according to Genesis chapter 21, verse 5 and following, it is first after Isaac's birth that Sarah mentions the laughing of the people, which is said to have been the occasion of his name, whereby it appears that this last history does not presuppose the existence of the two other accounts of the Annunciation of the birth of Isaac. As in relation to the birth of Isaac, different legends or poems were formed without reference to one another, some simpler, some more embellished. So we have two discordant narratives concerning the birth of Jesus. Of these, the narrative in Matthew is the simpler and ruder style of composition, since it does not avoid, though it be but by a transient suspicion on the part of Joseph, the throwing a shade over the character of Mary, which is only subsequently removed. That in Luke, on the contrary, is a more refined and artistical representation, exhibiting Mary from the first in the pure light of a bride of heaven. Footnote. The vision which, according to Matthew, Joseph had in his sleep, had besides a kind of type in the vision by which, according to Jewish tradition related by Josephus, the father of Moses was comforted under similar circumstances when suffering anxiety concerning the pregnancy of his wife, although for a different reason. Josephus, Antiquities, Book 2, Chapter 9, Section 3, quote, A man whose name was Amram, one of the nobler sort of Hebrews, 
was afraid for his whole nation, lest it should fail, by the want of young men to be brought up hereafter, and was very uneasy at it, his wife being then with child, and he knew not what to do. Hereupon he betook himself to prayer to God. Accordingly, God had mercy on him, and was moved by his supplication. He stood up by him in his sleep, and exhorted him not to despair of his future favors. For this child of thine shall deliver the Hebrew nation from the distress they are under from the Egyptians. His memory shall be famous while the world lasts. End footnote. End of section 24.